Revelation 3. By now you know that these, uh, this is a circuit of churches. The Apostle John may very well have been a circuit rider, as it were, who would, uh, went around the circle to each city, to each church, and to have had the opportunity to communicate with these churches, quite possible. And here's the letter to the church at Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. But so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That word spit, the Greek word there is the word emeo. We get our word emetic from it. A medicine that you can take that will make you vomit. Now that's the translation could be vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me. Gold refined by fire, that you may become rich, and white garments, that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes, that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The sins of the culture become the sins of the church. The Laodicean church had been drinking the Kool-Aid of its culture. It happens. And to be quite honest with you, lest we uh, omit ourselves from this possibility... To some degree, the sins of the culture have seeped into our own church. To some degree. Now, hopefully, it's minimal. But in your own personal life, my life, it's just impossible for there not to be some kind of impact and effect. That is why we need to be vigilant, constantly attending to our exposure to the word of God, for it's living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a critic, critic, 
critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is why we need constantly to be working with Scripture. Let it work on us as the Spirit takes it and moves it into our thought processes, working into our motives that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have to be careful as a church the danger of the failure to apply the truth of God's Word. It can have devastating, devastating effects. I've asked preachers this. What is the one thing that stands out as the most difficult for you to have pastors? I asked my pastor who's now with the Lord. My pastor growing up uh, came up as a youth and in high school that what was it that burdened him particularly about the work in the pastorate. And it was this, to look in a congregation and to see that breakdown in connection between truth and life, that lack of applying, living. By applying, I don't mean just some sort of a mental process where you just color between the lines, but that you not only see the implications but that you're, we're crying out to God, Lord, how should this alter my life, change me? So we must, Jesus said it this way. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. It's possible to sit in a congregation and gradually grow unconcerned about spiritual things. It's possible to fail to make the crossover from hearing truth to practicing the truth. And we've all been guilty of it to some degree. The Laodicean church was the church of the happy medium. Not making those connections. I can read a golf book. Magazine. Actually, I've tried this. I have tried it to read a golf manual. I've given up long ago on the process of learning to play golf, but um, at least playing well enough to really be halfway decent at it. You can go buy books on golf. You can read online. You can watch videos. You can watch DVDs. You can. I mean, you go to the Golf Channel. <laughs> Tell you everything you want to know and maybe more. Is that going to make you a good golfer when you go out there and stand at the first tee and it's a good 400-yard drive and you go from there? Well, you know, if you haven't had any experience with golf or actually anything in life falls into this category. Just reading the manual and understanding it and knowing the mechanics, that's not going to make the change in the way you come to the game. Let me say something about the book of Revelation. Since we are coming to a conclusion in these seven, church, these seven churches, what is the purpose of the book of Revelation? It is to encourage a suffering church with the prospect of Christ's second coming and the rewards that await overcomers. John is writing to a suffering church. They were not living on some island of ease. They were 
in the throes of persecution. And this book is designed to give them encouragement, moral courage, staying power, renewed joy in the Lord, with the hope, the brilliant hope, the life-altering hope of knowing that to be faithful in obedience to the Lord, the, it means the, the Lord takes, looks at that, evaluates that, receives that, and you will be rewarded for faithful obedience. Not saved by faithful obedience, but rewarded for faithful, faithful obedience. So this is where the first readers were encouraged by the truth that Jesus Christ controls the course and climax of history. That's why you have this uh, climactic book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. You know, and Christianity is unique here because of the Bible sitting in the middle of Christianity, namely that linear view of history. Do you know uh, societies prior to the revelation of God in his word to Israel and then to the church as he gave us the entire canon? That pagan systems and religions, they didn't, have, they had a cyclical view and do a cyclical view of history. I've seen it firsthand in India and what it can do to a society. That cyclical view, just go around and around and around. But Christianity is unique, linear. We're going somewhere. And this is why the revelation, it was written with this showing we're moving, moving toward in that expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. So we really live, if we do it, if we're, if we're thinking right, we're to live under the influence of a biblical philosophy of history. Now let me say a few things about the Laodicean church. Let's get, uh, let's do a quick tour. <laughs> I can remember standing, I had my anticipation up uh, when we visited, as I've mentioned, we, we went to these sites of these seven churches that, in 1999. And I guess next to the, to the, the present site of the church at Philadelphia, which was just a few pillars sticking up in the midst of a modern city, uh, ancient uh, temple pillars probably, this one was the most disappointing. Church of Laodicea. We get there, and what do I see? I see a big mound hill. And as you know, ancient cities were tended to be built, would be destroyed, be built and destroyed, and then they layered up like a layer cake. And I looked there on that hill, which was once the great city or the the church in the city of Laodicea, not the church, the city. Oh, I found, I was looking around for pottery shards, a little souvenir to take home, something that uh, this, we were here. But um, such as it was. But you know what's interesting about this Laodicean church is that among all the seven, there's no, there's no commendation from Jesus Christ. And instead there is a stinging rebuke from him. If you looked in your in the back of your Bible in the maps back in the back and you try to track this uh, circle of churches, Laodicea is 90 miles east of Ephesus. It's located in the Lycus Valley. There are two important highways, trade routes, that created the right making this the right place. I always like to 
Do you do that when you travel to some city or place and you ask some native, some person who says, why is this city here? I, I'm always interested in that kind of thing. But the city stood on a plateau nearly 100 feet above the river, the Lycus River. And it was one of a triopolis, if you will, three cities. All of these are mentioned in Scripture. There's Hierapolis, which is about six miles north of the river. And then there's Colossae, ten miles on up the Lycus Glen. So you have these three cities, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae becomes uh, particularly of interest, uh, of particular interest when you study the book of Colossians and you, as students of the book, of that book, know that there was a, there seemed to be a, a, a special kind of heresy, false teaching that was coming and sweeping into the Lycus Valley. That was in the early 60s AD. But Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was the wealthiest in Phrygia. It had fertile ground. I mean, just as I'm going to give you some of the characteristics so you can understand why it prospered. Had good grazing for sheep. There was careful breeding of sheep. This soft, glossy, black wool. It was much in demand. It brought fame to the area. It also was noted as for its banking industry and agricultural and commercial prosperity. It was famous in that it seems to have um, its favorite god was Zeus. It was coins that have been found from that era in Laodicea of an image of Zeus on the coinage. Laodicea was nearly named from the after the wife of the founder, Antiochus, not the Antiochus Epiphanes, you may be familiar with in Daniel, but when Alexander the Great's empire broke up among four generals, Antiochus being one of them, his wife was named Laodice. So he favored her by naming the city that he built at this critical place, this juncture on a road east and west, naming it after his wife. There was an earthquake in this city, in 60 A.D., it sits right in a really high earthquake-prone area there in western Turkey. Because of this, or in spite of the fact that this earthquake destroyed the city in 60 A.D., there were it, there was no need from the outside. This is really as ref, referred to by Tacitus in his Annals where he mentions the fact that Laodicea did not need any imperial help, no help from the Roman government to rebuild. It had enough money, it was prosperous enough, it rebuilt itself. (laughs) That's quite an accomplishment in any era. Laodicea was also known for the medical school that existed nearby. There was the Temple of Asclepius, there were well-known Laodicean physicians. They would compound their medications to treat various diseases. They created this heterogeneous mix of various ointments and of spice, and this would be for the ears, or an eye salve that was made from 
Phrygian powder mixed with oil. So you can see it had a lot of components that would have made it attractive commercially and made it a very prosperous area. And what is of special interest is the water supply problem in Laodicea. It had a a lack of of convenient source of water. There was the Lycus River, which was not too very far away, but it looked like the Chattahoochee after a good rainy period in Georgia, muddy. And water was brought six miles away from Denizli. And it was in a very uh, ingenious way, six miles through stone pipes, which were actually, they were constructed of cubical blocks of stone about three feet across, and they were bored through the center and then cemented into end. So it was a sophisticated kind of an aqueduct, just a piping system coming six miles away. Uh, Keep that in mind. Because you notice the hot and cold thing came up three times. You're neither hot nor you're neither cold, but you're lukewarm. Water comes from distance. Um, and we saw some of those locations where there were like hot springs in the area. The Romans really loved it. But anyway, here's Laodicea, depending on a water source that has to traverse through six miles of pipe. What might you think of water that would come that distance if it came from nice, cold springs six miles away? Or from a source of hot springs? What you think, what do you think might be its condition when it gets to where you want it to go? All right, so here's Laodicea. It was a city of people. People now, culture, who had learned to compromise and accommodate themselves to the needs and wishes of others. Water from hot springs was, and water from cold springs was cool to be lukewarm. I read one note on this that one, one preacher speaking to the city, describing it, he wrote, Laodicea was a kind of combination of Bank of America, Macy's Department Store, and the Mayo Mayo Clinic all rolled up into one. That's Laodicea. Now let's look, as we walk through this city, this church, where Jesus is giving them his diagnosis and a prescription. Let's see four affirmations about this city. First of all, one. And you can anticipate this if you've, you've followed the reading carefully. You notice, like all of them, there is that first line where Jesus describes himself <clears throat> in a way that's suitable to that church. So it is here. The Lord of the church possesses the credentials that demand attention. Yes. <clears throat> How so? Well, you can see that. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, those are filled with significance for this church. That should have made them to stand up and take notice or sit up, pay attention, Church of Laodicea. See, don't forget that prosperity and self-sufficiency highlighted the culture in which this church existed. 
as I suggested to you in the bulletin blurb this morning, that that prosperity and self-sufficiency that characterized the city seeped down into the soul of the church. Now, come back. Let's look at this. I, let me let me take these three. Let me give you a summary statement, and then I want to say something briefly about each of them. Jesus Christ is God's final word. The standard which everything else is, by which everything else is measured, and and an accurate witness to what God is like, and the one in whom creation had its beginning. That is potent. How so? First of all, he says he's the amen. What's the amen? It's an interesting word. It's not hard to master in the Hebrew and the Greek because it is from the Greek from the Hebrew is the word aman, amen in Greek. It is just transliterated in its places. It's taken from Isaiah 65 and verse 16. Blessed shall, shall be blessed by the God of truth. To say amen was to affirm what is true. So, you know, if you use it correctly in church, we... I don't know that we're noted for a lot of resounding amens. Sometimes maybe if Justin gets really red hot, somebody may say, Amen! And what are you saying? Well, it ought to be well placed. It means what you said is true and I affirm that. I'm in agreement with it. Something like an applause. I guess that's what we've substituted. Though, I don't know that Justin's not got any applauses yet to announce you ever heard programs on radio preachers and they and people applause and then you think, hey, I said something like that and I never got an applause. <laughs> I guess it's church culture. But the word appears, amen, it appears nine times in Revelation. What the point is here is that Jesus adds an amen to God's purposes. It's a so be it. Put it another way. Jesus Christ is God's period. May I make it into maybe an exclamation point at the end of the sentence? He is the one who affirms the Father's purpose. Now, while I'm going through these, I hope you don't see these just as some kind of uh, academic set-aparts, that this is saying something to the church. So, you don't need him. You don't need God. You're self-sufficient. You've got wealth running out your ears. Think of this. He is the one who affirms the Father's purpose. Faithful and true witness. The only, only the truth can bring the church to its senses. He's the one who exhibits the Father's faithfulness. Here's this lethargic church. Wake up. He's the amen. He's the one who affirms God's purpose. He's the one who exhibits the Lord's faithfulness. And then the beginning, he's the first and foremost. It echoes uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He's the source of the creation. He's the creator of all things. He's the one who produced the Father's world. Well, what should that say to a church that looked upon, they had natural resources. They had an economy that was... uh, that was going on all cylinders. So 
What is God's purpose for the local church? What is his purpose for the church? Think of who he is. Your church, my church, the Laodicean church, it ought to be centered in this rich Christology of who Jesus Christ is and what he has revealed about the Father. If time permitted, and I only, I'm not going to do it, but in First Peter, I think it's just a clap. We took this sign, you know, the, oh, the building B, it says, proclaiming the excellencies of God. We lifted that years ago from this passage in First Peter 2, 9 through 12. I think it's a grand statement as to why a church exists. So, I'm going to move along and just summarize and say it this way. That therefore, this lethargic church, this church that was self-sufficient, didn't have a sense of need. We don't need God. We don't need Christ. Now, you may not have gotten them to say that in so many words, but they were living and conducting their congregational life in such a way. But this this lethargic Laodicean church should pay close attention to his words. Do you have it? Like someone walking into a class of students who are sophomoric in their outlook on life. You know, know know-it-alls, know-it-alls, and come in and here's the person who listen to their credentials. Sit up and pay attention. And I don't think I would do well in school system if I were teaching today. Just the way I look at the classroom and sure, you know, you love, you help, you encourage and so on. But I look upon a class and a teaching as what? The teacher has studied. The teacher knows something. You need to know this. And you need to listen. And then as you learn, you're going to be able to then interact and ask questions and develop. Jesus is setting it clear up front, Laodicean church. You need to listen to me. Do you know who, do you know who I am? This is who I am. I'm the amen. I'm the faithful and true witness. I created the world. Whoa. We'd better listen. All right. I'll summarize it briefly. Say it this way. So therefore, if I may take those three statements, don't lose sight of your purpose as a church. Be what the church is supposed to be. We ought to be a people that are overflowing with good works and draw attention to Jesus Christ. That's what we ought to be. We ought not to blend in with the culture. Be countercultural. Jesus was countercultural. And thirdly, as he says, the creator of the world, don't chase the wrong kind of wealth which they were chasing. True security. And isn't this really why we wealth is so alluring and seductive? It just really feeds uh, some emotional security, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You know the difference between when you don't have enough and then maybe you get a little windfall or whatever happens. Maybe you get a little older. Maybe things get a little better. Oh, it's good. I can go to the doctor's office and I can pay my co-pays without chewing my nails and wondering if i got to beat the check to the bank. Oh, you would never do that, though. But, uh, you know, something along that line. Don't chase the wrong kind of wealth. Jesus is the source of everything. Pursue him. All right. Now, that's the first affirmation. It's important for if a church is going to come to its senses and get traction, 
and move out of its condition of, leth- of lethargy and self-sufficiency, it would need to begin there. All right, now next, second affirmation goes down verses 15, 16, and 17. It would be that the Lord of the church is sickened by spiritual lukewarmness. This kind of church is repulsive to Christ. It's clearly, it's his disapproval, his evidence here. Now, notice what he's saying, and let me let me break it down for you, and then I'm going to give you some real, uh, some take-home stuff on what lukewarmness would look like, because we're right in the midst of, the, of this condemnation of the church, its criticism, is that spiritual indifference is demonstrated by ignorance of one's real, real spiritual condition. They had been taken in by their own propaganda. They listened to themselves. I know one pastor is entitled this church, the church, the the deceived church. They were self-deceived. You see, the material wealth of their city had created to their sense of self-sufficiency. They had a deficiency in zeal. This is what wealth can do for you. It can begin to stifle zeal for the Lord. Dependence on him, a sense of need for him. And Laodicea was a self-reliant city. It was a wealthy city. So the spirit of this surrounding culture had crept into the congregation and it had essentially paralyzed its, its spiritual life. You know, there is this danger, and this is going to hitchhike a little bit on what Justin said this morning, the danger of equating material wealth and prosperity and comfort with blessing from God and approval from God. That's an old heresy. It didn't get invented with the prosperity gospel being preached in quarters around our area and on television. It's been around. God is kind of a quid pro quo relationship with God. I do this for him. He gives me this. Laodicea's very existence depended on others. Water supply. You, know, you can study this in history. I was looking at a map just recently, and I remember just a little bit about Finland and its dependency on Russia and what a plague that has been to Finland through the years. But he says of them, I would that you were either hot or cold. Now, what does he mean? Some have mis, uh, misunderstood this. Uh, to, to, I want you to be either cold spiritually or hot spirit. No, 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 no. It's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, I mean, listen, cold water is refreshing. I like it. Don't you? Hey, I'm, I'm an ice in the glass person. Fill it to the top with ice. But still, nice cold glass of water. Not tepid. Hot water. <clears throat> hot water. Well, okay, you got to do, you got to coffee. Um, or let's just say it's good. It's certainly useful for medicinal purposes. We can always easily verify that in every movie I think I've ever seen where they get into one of these birthing situations in a movie. Hurry up and go get some hot water. (laughs) It's needed. So to zealously oppose Christ is at least an indication of brain activity. To take Christ seriously enough to oppose him To be hot is to be zealously in serving him. Cold water, refreshing. But lukewarmness, useless. That's his point. Useless. You are useless. And so 
to be useful, to be useful. This is where you think you've deceived yourself. You think you are, but you are not. By the way, this matter of usefulness is I'm going to go on to show you the lack of usefulness. Christians can put themselves in the place of not being useful. Did you know that? Fruitless and useless. Just look at 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 9. It's not a welcome condition, but it's possible to go there. So we'll come back to it in a moment. So let me add this. Self-deception fails to see one's spiritual poverty. Now, track with me. This is where he says, look, you're wretched. You see the list there? You're wretched means hopeless. You're poor, blind, naked. You've lost everything important. It's a deplorable state you're in. Miserable. When you're poor, blind, and naked, then you are carrying a great, tremendous burden. Poor, reduced to begging. Blind, unable to perceive spiritual things. All right, you need to look at Second Peter 1 9. All right, you may not believe me, but uh, I'm not saying that this is a, a, a condition to be embraced, but it is a condition that may very well be experienced, sadly. And in First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1 says, all right, I'm, I'm going to have to parachute into it. He says, uh, for if verse 8, for these qualities are yours are increasing, they'll render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where he's mentioned moral excellence and anti-moral excellence, knowledge and your knowledge, uh, self-control and to your self-control, endurance and to your endurance, godliness and to your godliness, brotherly kindness, to your brotherly kindness, love. All right. It's the way we want to go. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. A spiritual blackout. So it's possible as a Christian to get to the point where you, you're clueless. You can't see things that you ought to see. You've deceived yourself so you can't even understand the terrible condition you're in because you've justified it. You're self-sufficient. The prosperity has just leached, leached the spiritual energy and vitality out of you. And naked, he says, stripped of outer clothing, not properly attired. You know, I find an interesting connection on that. You're in the book of Titus. That's the book of adornment. This biblical cosmology where you noticed in Titus on two or three occasions in that book, it says you need to adorn the truth. And the idea is that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Like you ought to dress well. And the best way to dress well is dress well with truth and practice. Now, I need to say something about this miserable. If you're self-sufficient, you're complacent, you're lethargic, you fooled yourself and you don't even know how bad off you are, how can you be miserable? Because you probably think, hey, I'm good. <laughs> I'm feeling, I'm copacetic. All is well. Look, we got all, everybody is here today. Look, we've got money to do things with, that whatever we want to do. Ah, I came across this illustration. It works. I, it works. I'll adapt it a little bit. It would be as if you were, say, in a strategic place geographically where you're looking at uh, two Amtrak trains. You can see the tracks down below you. And you actually are not so far away as that you can't even see into the cars and see the movements of the people. 
And you look into, from your vantage point, down off the top of the hill at these two Amtrak trains. But in one car, you notice here is a person who's moving down through, uh, maybe in the diner, comes and sits down, puts up the newspaper, nice cup of coffee, maybe a cigar, and just enjoying the ride, clickety-clack, clickety-clack, going down. And then you look over here, and there's this other train, and you can see something comparable going on there. And they're just just as content as can be, but they're about to be in a catastrophic wreck, train wreck. They're miserable, and they don't know it because they don't know what's coming. And so here's the condition of this church. You know, you could say a bottom line pride, bottom line pride. That's bad, really bad. That's the spiritual equivalence of insanity. And Proverbs 6, 16, six things the Lord hates. You know what he hates? I'll mention too. The Lord hates a proud look. Hey, I'm better than you and I don't need you. I've got all that it takes. Some variations of that. Kind of celebrated in our society. And they didn't need Jesus at all. Their affluence had anesthetized them to their sense of need for the Lord and the work of his spirit in their lives. Now, let me let me get down to this spiritual lukewarmness. I said I was trying to make it uh, real gettable and put the cookies down on the bottom shelf. Other than what I've said, let me add this. Spiritual lukewarmness is thinking that you are one thing when actually the opposite is true. It's morality without spirituality. Uh, You can have that. It fails to see the significance of the truth with which it is acquainted. That is, you can cite chapter and verse. You know your way around the scripture and maybe even around theology. It's a life that's superficial, cluttered with things that finally won't matter in the end. Chasing trivial things. How do you get into this spiritual state? Could it even happen to an entire local congregation? Yes, this is it. Laodicea. How so? I'll offer some suggestions. I'm not exhausting the possibilities. It's allowing priorities to become confused and infested with self-interest. By becoming careless and lazy in the observance of one's spiritual disciplines. When was the last time you read your Bible? Uh, a couple of weeks ago. Well, when was the last time you had a meaningful time of prayer? Well, I prayed a little longer and uh, right before we asked a meal last week. By taking greater interest in things than in people. This is when possessions begin to occupy an inordinate amount of time creates a Morality without spiritual passion. So you can have affluence, prosperity, a morality, but not really any sense of dependence on the Lord and eagerness for him. By church attendance, it becomes perfunctory and a failure to apply the truth that you hear. Got to go. If I don't go, somebody will be on my case. Well, if you're a teenager or younger, you know, mom and dad are going to see to it. That's the great danger of being a church kid you got to own it. 
Oh, my, and you know, parents, you know, you have to pray for your children. Lord, oh, that they'll own it for themselves. By studying the Bible without the pursuit of the joy in, in God. You can be interested in the Bible and at the same time not really seeking to know God. That's a scary thought. Possible. By prospering materially, relationally, physically, without generosity, sacrifice, and dependence on God. In other words, you could be kind of good people. A good old boy, as we may say in the South. (laughs) Harboring unconfessed sins, nursing grudges, jealousies, and bitterness. Hey, but I feel good about myself. I'm fine. By allowing your family life, recreation, pursuit of a hobby or work to sap your time and your energy. God gets the leftovers. All right, I've not exhausted the list, but I'll leave it at that. I don't want to go to this third affirmation. Let's look at this now. I think it's about time for a prescription. You know, that thing the doctor gives you and you can't read, but uh, you're hoping somebody else can. And uh, prescription. Verses 18, 19, 20. Watch it. The Lord of the church alone possesses the prescription for spiritual health. Laodicea in church, you want to get yourself where you need to be out of your sickness into good spiritual health. Listen. Notice he says in verse 18, buy from me. I mean, you have to ask for what's needed. A sense of need. That's where it starts. Lord, you could say, Lord, I don't even know all the ways in which I know you because I have reduced my thought processes down to this, the way the world thinks. And I've just got a shrunken soul and a shrunken mind. But Lord, with what glimmer of light? It's if it's just enough, a, a night light. You know, night lights can be really helpful things. <laughs> and just say, Lord, op- open my eyes. All right, but let's look at it. First, I'll, I'll walk you through three, the three issues here. One, that spiritual poverty is remedied by experiencing one's wealth in Christ, by putting off the old and putting on the new and having one's eyes open to the wisdom of God. All right, let's break that down. Now, these things were well known in, uh, in Laodicea. See them? He mentions gold. He mentions white gar- garments. And he, he mentions eye salve. That's what I'm referring to here. That, first of all, he says, buy from me what? Gold. Buy. Oh, I failed to point out. It's a very, <coughs> it's an interesting use of the word I advise. Um, yes, verse 18. I advise you. Uh, I found this interesting. This word that's used here is only here and in John 18 and verse 14. The only two places. The word is an invitation that leads and draws rather than demands. I think it's the one where Pilate spoke to the Jews, to Caiaphas. And he says, I advise you such and such. It's it's more of a, a drawing. I advise you. It's not a, do this. It's, I'm going to give you some counsel. Interesting touch by this Lord, the Lord of the church. Interesting, the way it comes to them. Not through yet either. Spiritual poverty then is remedied how? All right, gold. What's that? Experiencing their wealth in Christ. 
How does that come? I'll tell you one way it'll come. It'll come through the fires of testing. Here, let me show you something. Go to Colossians. Um, this, uh, I almost missed this one. I would have really, I'd have felt badly for not, I just happened to notice. I was looking for verse 2 of Colossians 2. Are you with me in Colossians? That's why I want you to be with me, please. I was looking at verse 2, and I noticed a reference to this matter of wealth in Christ. And then when I started, well, I wanted to start up at verse 1. I said, oh, <laughs> whoa, are you with me? Am I ringing your bell? Look, look at verse 1, Colossians 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea. And for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Scripture is always the best commentary on Scripture. This is what Jesus is saying to the church, to get themselves to to, uh, access, enter into, draw upon, take, withdraw from your relationship in Christ so that you can experience this transformation of thought in life that you need to get this spiritual energy for me ramped up and moving wealth. And he mentions later, by the way, this is about 64 AD. So about 30 years later, that's where we are in Revelation, uh, in Revelation 3. So you can see, uh, 30 years. What can happen to a congregation in 30 years? Okay, I thought about that. 1985 to 2015. Hmm. I don't doubt that some of the originals were still there. All right, just an aside thought. But then he says, all right. All right, get the gold, the gold, heavenly riches. A little bit of irony here, later see at the banking center. Remember what I said, banking center? But you know where the real gold is? It's in Christ. He's your wealth. And then white garments, practicing works of righteousness. Put on Christ, grow in grace. What do we say about Laodicea? Famous for its raven-colored wool. You get it? You get it? Maybe they would have even looked around and seen Oh, yeah, yeah, see what they're wearing. (laughs) But this is the white garment, righteous deeds. And then I salve. What's that? Laodicea was known for what? Being this medical center where you could get this I salve. But I've got one better for you. I've got one better for you. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit in illumination. Spiritual blindness can be remedied by Jesus Christ. Remember, we saw that you can be blind or short-sighted. Jesus Christ can remedy that if your spiritual life has shrunken and you don't see as you should. Spiritual insight, it's needed to overcome your blindness. I see, and I see better, and I see better today, and I see better. Ah, ah. And so, I advise you. And then he says this, this issue, a radical change. In, of mind must take place if change is to take place coupled with a sense of urgency. Notice this. Notice the language that he uses here. He says that 
I want you to, whom I love and reprove, be zealous, therefore, and repent. That's what I'm working on. See it? Zealous. The uh, zeluo. Zeal. Urgency. It's that here. Restructure your entire life. Oh, he's really getting into the soul of these Laodiceans. Listen, if you want to have, do this 180 in your life as a church and in your life as an individual Christian, restructure your entire life. Well, this is good counseling material. And there's to be such a shakeup in the entirety of your thinking that your whole life changes. And this is the remedy, only remedy for spiritual lukewarmness. Recognize your condition. Come to your senses. And God may very well disturb you and awaken you to the condition in which you've fallen. And you'll say, you'll see more. You'll see more. And then thirdly, verse 20, notice, ah, this is a special interest. Well, yeah, there it is. You see it in the background. Famous verse. One of the most famous. My Christian experience, I don't know, I heard this early, early on. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Matter of fact, gospel tracts have made their appearance with this as their appeal. And, you know, popular ways in presenting the gospel have used this to say, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. You know, that always bothered me because I never really could see where that was better than say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I'm going to rattle your cage a little bit, but let's look at the passage. The Lord of the church desires a restoration of fellowship with those who have become spiritually insipid. That's what he's asking for here. I'm standing at the door knocking. You need to know something about the Greek and Roman uh, custom of eating. In case you wanted to know or didn't want to know, in the Greek and Roman world, there was a light breakfast Whatever you could scratch up, a little different than the way, well, at least in our house, we approach breakfast. Then there was this, there was this lunch. There was a light breakfast and lunch, and I should have said lunch was whatever you could scratch up. And that does kind of fit the way it is at our place. But anyway, then there was the supper, the dipnon. This was the biggie, the dipnon, the big meal in the evening. And, you know, this has kind of come over into European culture. If you've been to Europe, you know, often you, you get invited to somebody's home. You could be eating 9 o'clock. That would drive me crazy. Um, but uh, 9 o'clock, it's almost time to go to bed. And But that's the big meal in the evening. Family and friends would gather, come around the table at the end of the day, and the word dipnon was used to describe this big dinner. This is the word that's just used to describe the Lord's table, by the way. All right, now, what's the point here? Come in, and I only come in and sup. There are three views on this. I'll be brief. That some use this verse as an evangelistic text. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. They say that the invitation is to invite Jesus into one's heart or into one's life, an invitation to salvation. I don't want to go and chase that. I've really got issues with that way of presenting the gospel, but that's not my point here. But I think you can tell. I I think it's really, I'm thinking, why do you say it that way? What's wrong with believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay, I made my point. Secondly, 
Others interpret it to mean an invitation by Jesus for a restoration to a restoration for fellowship with him. He's standing outside the church. They don't depend on him. They've not sought him. He's not the center of their thinking and their life. And so what he do, he's doing, he's calling for a renewal of supping with him, fellowship, an invitation to that. Now, there is another view that they, they take, uh, Revelation 3.20 takes this to be a reference to the return of Christ and the ensuing banquet supper in the kingdom. I'm not going to get into that. There is something got appealing to that. But I think the point is still that he desires fellowship, which would eventuate in fellowship and enjoying him in the coming kingdom. But the urgency here is for believers to seek to experience fellowship with him. I want to notice, notice that he doesn't coerce this, push this upon one. He says, I want to have fellowship with you. I want to... This is the communion. This is the vine and the branches so that there can be love. And, and, and notice this. I've, I fail to call, uh, call attention to this, and it goes back up to verse 19 um, when he says, uh, well, it's a part of something I want to deal with. That those whom I love, I, I want to call attention to that. I love. Interesting choice of words here. He uses, you know, there are two primary words in the New Testament for love. Is the word agapao, it's the verb, and phileo. Now, there's synonyms. You've got to be careful with synonyms. Context is king. But synonyms kind of like overlapping circles. That's something like that. And so you have an area of difference out here, but in the center you have an area of similarity. But you're always looking, what does the context say? But you will find that agapao tends to stress love as something that it's... Um, it's sacrificial. It's giving. It's giving oneself. Know that the person doesn't deserve it. I'm going to give this to you. Whereas phileo tends to, at times, context determines more of the uh, affectionate response in love. And he uses the word phileo here. I'm just saying that there seems to be this this wooing gentleness to the church. He, I love. And I want to sup with, and fellowship with. After all that he said about this church, there is this tenderness and this invitation that's given. And so, with that in mind, I'll, let me just summarize it this way. Here's Jesus standing outside the church and he's knocking. What does he want? He wants to have free, full access to the life within the assembly. He wants to restore communion with him in view of his second coming. And the marriage supper of the Lamb, true, but he wants to have this now. And he wants this, he wants an involvement in things of mutual interest. He wants us love him. If you love me, keep my commandments. And Lord, I love you and I do this. And as I do this, it pleases you and I want to please you. You're, this is what you like, you want, you desire, you love. And when I want, I like, I desire, that's communion. That's drawing close to the Lord. Doing things together with a common goal. My wife has had to work on me on this, I confess. Doing things together. We men, we can be so stupid. 
doing things together. Well, we're in the same house. <laughs> no. Do things together. Beth has shown me how that it's wonderful to do things together in the kitchen. <laughs> in the kitchen. And uh, we can be a little slow getting that. Uh, but that's communion. Fellowship. And... I need to hasten on to the conclusion. The fourth affirmation. The Lord of the church promises special status in the kingdom to those who overcome. Now, I'm looking at my watch and um, I should be finishing now. And I wanted to talk to you about the overcomers again. Here's what I will say. I'll try to compress it. The promises are obviously given to overcomers. Through these seven churches. Now you know there are three views. And I want to be fair. There are three views with regard. Some say this refers to all believers. By virtue of their perseverance in the faith. Every believer is an overcomer. So every believer gets rewarded. To some degree. Others say that it refers to believers. Who are faithful to the end. And, but not faithful to the end and lose their salvation. So you don't overcome by not making it to the end. And then there are those who are to believers who are faithful through suffering, obedient to the Lord, and who are rewarded with special places of rule, intimacy, and service in the kingdom. You know, I take the third view, that I think these overcomers, having overcome through the blood of Christ, that's our positional reality. But in practice, we overcome in faithful obedience. Do you notice in in verse 21, he references the fact that as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, do you know how? The Lord was faithful in obedience and moving to his through suffering and and to death on the cross, obedient unto death. And he was rewarded. Now, I say to my friends, and I I have friends who differ with me on this, and I I say that no matter what view you take on the overcomers, especially two of the views, the one that says you lose your salvation, I think you really got a lot of problems. But that those who say that this refers to all believers, I say if this does refer to all believers that then they can lose their crown. It says that. Don't anybody steal your crown. You can lose it. Okay. And if it does refer to all believers, then it looks like John is preaching some kind of works righteousness. You work and you get rewarded. Successfully, you're there. And if it, thirdly, if it's all, then... Is there any room for failure? Do you have any room for the theology of disobedience? You know, I find that missing. I do. Not that I'm looking for, oh, I want to find, I want to find all the passages I can on being disobedient so I can be disobedient. Oh, no, please, give me a break. That's not what we want. But there is a theology of the disobedient Christian. And what's, what that means and what happens and it's bad, it's not good and you're miserable and blind. 
And there needs to be repentance and a turning, a 180 and a change. And seeking to be faithful in obedience through suffering. So I'm going to leave my friends with that. Now, you, my friends will say, well, I've got my problems. I'll just say it this way. I'd rather have my problems than yours. Okay, I'm just going to let it go with that. I'd rather have mine than yours. Because it's one of those kinds of issues. All right, I should conclude and just say this. That what does Jesus invite them to do? In light of verse 21, the saints who are faithful to Christ in suffering and servanthood will be rewarded by sharing in his authority in the kingdom. He's going to delegate his authority. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us, deny us rewards. Not approval, not approval. So if believers fail to be obedient when suffering for Christ, they'll be denied the reward and will not have a share in the kind of leadership and rulership. The ten cities, for one thing, in Luke, according to Luke 19. Christ is going to delegate some of his ruling authority to his people. Just look at Luke 19, 17. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 6 and 3. It says, well, even judge angels. Wow, think of that one. Judging angels, tell me more. In Revelation 20 and verse 4, in Revelation 22 and verse 6, Christ will delegate some of his ruling authority to his people. Enjoyment in the kingdom. And then... The Lord Jesus Christ is our example in humble service and the reward this receives. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Do you want to share Christ's authority in the kingdom and have him delegate to you the privilege of serving him? Oh, someone may object and say, well, this creates quite a caste system in the kingdom. No, 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 no. If you read into it, fallen humanity's condition now, it would. But this is redeemed. We are redeemed people who are glorifying God. I say some believers are going to just pulsate with megawattage in glorifying Jesus Christ. Wow, brilliantly. Like LEDs. (laughs) Some will be putting out 40 watts for the glory of God. Will they be regretting it? There'll be no sinful, there'll be no sinful disposition, no, no, no movement or motive to second guess God. It's going to be a transformation. And there's going to be variation. So therefore then, I'm given this incentive. And I think what God calls us as a church to do, do I want to do, is there something of this Laodicean church in me, in us? I think that, I hope that if we've gone through all seven of these churches in the right way, you know what I hope? That in these 2020 work teams, the missions team met, to the work team met today for three, two, three hours. These, in which many of you are serving on these, that what we're doing is, Lord, we don't want to be like the church at Sardis. Dead. We don't want to be like the church at Laodicea. Is there a degree to which we are complacent and lethargic? Well, Lord, any element of that, we confess it, Lord. And Lord, open our eyes and let's, let's move out to these new frontiers and do the deeds that please Him.
Lord, we want to please you. We love you, and we want to show that we love you. We want to show that we love you by doing the things that you love. That's what we want. God, help us. Help us, Lord, to want to do the things that you love, you've commanded, and there will be church, a church, Lord, that will shine brightly like a lighthouse with attraction, therefore, to the gospel and to Jesus Christ through what you are doing in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.